This morning, our guest speaker is Dr. Montel Wilder. And Dr. Wilder is not a stranger to many of us here at Southside. He has preached here on numerous occasions, and he also presided over the ordination of Pastor Valerian back in 2019. Um, originally from Tennessee, Dr. Wilder received his secular education in high school and college. Um, prior to his born-again experience, he struggled with the evolutionary dogma that he had been taught during those years. He embarked on an in-depth study of the creation-evolution debate, and he earned his master's in theology and his doctorate focusing on the scientific fields that bear on the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Dr. Wilder has taught creation sciences at numerous colleges, high schools, churches, and other venues here in the United States and also in many other communities and countries around the world. Currently, Dr. Wilder serves as the chairman of the board of CEF of Massachusetts, is the Northeast Legislative Director for the American Association of Children's Christian Schools and is the acting president of the New England Association of Christian Schools. He and his wife, Deborah, reside in Air, Massachusetts, and for the past 15 years, he has served as the senior pastor at Grace Baptist Church in Pepperell. Is a blessing a blessing to introduce Pastor Wilder. Thank you. Mostly, what that means is I'm old. <laughs> so. Um, First of all, I want to thank you for letting me come back and speak here again. I love this body. I uh, am so pleased with the way that you have worked with Pastor Valerian. I, I cannot tell you how much I esteem him and how well I think of him. And I just praise the Lord that he is uh, able to serve among people like you that love the Lord, want to serve God, want to support their pastor. I think that's wonderful. If I could, just before I begin, I would also like to mention just a couple of things uh, about what's going on in the Ukraine. A couple of you people have asked me about that. I taught Bible college in the Ukraine on several occasions um, and support, we support pastors that are there now. Uh, probably 30 years ago, I met Vitaly Keller when he was finishing his master's degree at Calvary Theological Seminary, and we have supported him as a missionary all of these years through his marriage, having children, them growing. Um, Pastor Keller is a Russian. His wife is Ukrainian. And they were ministering in the city of Kiev uh, when the war broke out. Uh, the problem is uh, Russia sent in a lot of spies ahead of the uh, troops, many of them because it's hard to tell the difference between a Russian and Ukrainian. They're practically the same people. Uh, would go in and they had a special invisible paint that they would mark targets with so that they could use the smart bombs to destroy, things like that. And Vitaly is from Moscow. And Moscow has a very distinct accent, much like people that are from Boston or from the South. 
And so when he speaks, you know that he has a Russian background rather than a Ukrainian background. And so because of that, he was, for lack of a better way to say it, ordered out of the country because even though his wife is Ukrainian, they didn't trust that he was not a Russian spy. So they felt it was best that, that he leave. They basically said, if you stay, you're a spy. If you leave, we know you're not. So they are in uh, Sweden right now. And uh, Pastor Keller is running a church there in Sweden of the refugees that have come from the Ukraine. And he said, we're having more fruit in Sweden than we ever had in the Ukraine, leading Ukrainians to the Lord. In the last two, three months, they've had almost 20 people come to know Christ as Savior, which is a tremendous amount for, for the Ukrainian people. So I ask if you would to pray for the Kellers. Um, their ministry continues on. And then also, um, we support a pastor that is still in Ukraine. Um, he is, um, am I doing something wrong? No, I'm okay? All right. <laughs> um, uh, his name is, 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 his last name is Akimov. And he and his wife were in a church outside of Kiev. And they have had to flee and through his mission board, we were able to raise $90,000 to help him in a specific ministry. And what he did is he bought a van, brand new van, because all of the countries around the Ukraine are, are trying to make available to them whatever vehicles of transportation they can. So he was able to get a beautiful new van for like a third of what it would normally be. And because the war is going on and they need transportation in the country, he didn't have to pay the five levels of bribes that he normally would to get the van into the country. And uh, what he's doing is he is um, going from Lviv in the west of Ukraine, driving across the country to the battlefront with supplies for people, food, water, whatever it may be. He loads the van up, drives all the way across the country through the difficulties going on, puts that food out with the gospel of Jesus Christ, and then he loads the van with refugees and drives them back across the country. And this is what he is doing. Obviously, it's a bit dangerous. Uh, he goes into war-ravaged areas regularly, um, but he is not stopping to do that. He is, that's his ministry, and, and he's pushing it as hard as he can, and that's what he does, back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, trying to... Uh, give the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's seen many people saved. And of course, as he says, when they get in my van and we have a, you know, thousand mile trip to take, I have a captive audience. So uh, they hear the gospel more than once. So uh, it is a difficult thing. You don't hear it in the press that much, but there are a lot of Ukrainian soldiers dying. Um, they, they don't want to put the number of casualties out there. They're afraid that the Western countries, if they see the casualty figures, may begin to think that they're not going to be able to sustain the battle. So you don't hear much about how many Ukrainians are dying, but the Ukrainian soldiers are literally, some of them laying their bodies in front of tanks to try and stop them. And it's just a, a very, very difficult uh, time for them. So uh, pray for those pastors. There are many other pastors that we know of that we have worked with that have not left. I spoke with uh, one of the classes that I taught had a former KGB agent in it who is now studying to be a pastor. He is a pastor now. And uh, he told me that at least two from our class, a young man named Maxim and another man, have been killed in the fighting already because they would not leave their parish and stood with the soldiers as chaplains. And uh, 
were killed in the fighting. So it is a difficult thing, but the gospel is going out, and uh, they covered our prayers, that's for sure. So thank you for that aside. We're going to talk about fathers this morning. Obviously, it's Father's Day. But even though I'm going to be speaking basically to fathers, uh, ladies, please don't tune out because you have to help fathers be fathers, right? And uh, if you're here and you're not married and you're young, you need to know what God has to say about fathers and their responsibilities and what they're supposed to be doing. So I, I hope that everyone will be uh, interested in this because I think it, it affects everyone. And beyond that, we're going to see as we look at this that when it comes right down to it, nothing against mothers, but it is not mothers that mold the citizens of our country. It is the father's. It is a task that God has not given to the mothers, nor has he fully equipped them to do it. We're going to see why that is. It is fathers that he has equipped to do that. So even if you say, well, I'm not a father, I'm you know, not married, whatever it may be, the country that you live in, your neighborhood, your society, <laughs> is affected by how effective fathers are in their homes. So if you would, turn with me into the book of Malachi, Malachi chapter 4. Of course, Malachi is one of the most uh, difficult books when it comes to speaking it to the nation of Israel because it's full of rebuke. Now, God never gives rebuke when he doesn't also give you the other side. If you don't want to have this trouble come to you, this warning of judgment, then change your ways, and here's how you change them. And he also says, and if you change them, here's what's going to happen, and it's good. And he does that in the book of Malachi as well. However, the majority of Malachi is a running dialogue that God is having with the nation of Israel because they have drifted so far away from him. Now, as he rebukes them in chapters 1 through 3, when you come to chapter 4, chapter 4 is like a little addendum that's put on at the end of the book. Okay, I've rebuked you. I've shown you what you're doing wrong. And, 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 and I've told you how you can do right now. Now, let me just sum it up for you. And that's what Malachi chapter 4 is, that summarization, if you will. So if you would, read with me. Malachi chapter 4, I'm going to start reading in verse 1. For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. Now, just very quickly, again, whenever you see in the King James Bible, I don't know if you're using that, but most Bibles, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, it is the proper name Yahweh, or, or the, the anglicized way that we say it is Jehovah. That's his name. It means the self-existent one. There's no one else in the universe that can claim to be self-existent. So wherever you see it all capitalized, that's the name Jehovah. So look at verse 2. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and he shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. And ye shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, saith Jehovah of the hosts. I remember, remember ye the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Father, we need to understand this as difficult as this book is. We need to see ourselves in it. We need to see our country in it. 
And Father, I would just ask you that your Holy Spirit would speak to each of us this morning. We look to you to do that. Father, you said that you would give us wisdom. On that promise, we expect it and we thank you in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. A Christian man had uh, taken on as a ministry to visit the incarcerated at a prison in his community. It was a very large prison, and uh, he had a very fruitful ministry in there, was looked up to very much. One day, an inmate asked him if he could get him a Mother's Day card so he could send it to his mother. Word passed throughout the prison, and in no time at all, he had literally hundreds and hundreds of prisoners asking him if he would get them a Mother's Day card that they could send to their mothers. Now, in order to supply all the cards that were necessary, he went to a card company and, and, and made a deal with them where he could buy these, these thousands of cards for pennies on the dollar. And he brought them into the prison, and every single one of the cards was used. Prisoners took them, wrote them out, sent them to their mothers. It was a glorious Mother's Day. Now, this Christian man, being a man of foresight, thought, Father's Day is right around the corner. Maybe I need to do the same thing. He goes back to the card company. He says, I'd like to purchase, as I did, the Mother's Day cards, the Father's Day cards. The card company was more than happy to do that. And so he was able to bring thousands of Father's Day cards into the prison for the men to use to send to their fathers. Three years later, not one Father's Day card had been used. It is safe to assume that there were some problems between these men and their fathers. I would even dare to say that for the overwhelming majority of them, these inmates are there because of the problems that they had with their fathers. And so it's something that we need to look at. And I suggest to you this morning that what is really sobering and I think really chilling about this situation is that it has become a microcosm of what is going on in our society right now. More and more and more, fathers and children are being estranged. And whether you want to believe that there is a correlation or not, you cannot deny that as our country has drifted away from its moorings, its biblical foundation, that our society's moral decay has caused an overwhelming attitude of estrangement between fathers and their children. In fact, sociologists tell us that in any society, that crime is rampant and out of control, without fail, that society has a high incidence of fatherless homes. In 1998, for the first time in the history of the United States, all of the police computers across the country were linked together. That's why if you didn't pay a parking ticket in New Hampshire and you're driving in Oregon, all that policeman does is go on and say, hey, you got a parking ticket you didn't pay in New Hampshire. Because all of them are now linked. This was a federal program paid for by the federal government. In order that, every state would have at their fingertips the information necessary about a person that they're stopping, whether they were dangerous or not. But having linked all the computers together, the FBI was also able to extrapolate from that information certain trends when it comes to crime. And what they found out is, in every single instance, regardless of location, regardless of what, what the secular world would call race, it didn't matter, any neighborhood, any area that had 30% of its homes with single mothers in them, 30% or more 
were the neighborhoods that were classified as unable to be controlled by law enforcement. That crime was rampant and there wasn't anything that law enforcement could do to stop it. They could fight it. They could try to curb it. But they weren't really able to make much headway. You know, about 50 years ago, the radical feminist movement of America coined a cute little quip. They still quote it today. They say this, a woman without a man is like a fish without a bicycle. You can buy this on t-shirts, bumper stickers, buttons, whatever you want. And when you first read that, it doesn't seem to make much sense. What does a fish have to do with a bicycle? But I want you to understand that that's exactly what they think. What does a man have to do with a woman? What does a man do that a woman can't do herself? We don't need men. In fact, they have another bumper sticker, and it says this, all we need is your seed. And it's the idea that they are putting onto our country that when it comes right down to it, women are so capable, and don't get me wrong, women, you are quite capable. The person I admire most in all of the world happens to be a woman, my wife. Although you are extremely capable, there are certain things that God did not create you to do. And it is very difficult for you to accomplish those things because God turned them over to men. And it was men that were supposed to stand up to do it. I agree wholeheartedly. In the experience of my life, it is women that have been the backbone of society. But the reason they've been the backbone of society is because the men wouldn't be the backbone of society. And our whole society all along suffers because of that. Our society as a whole, in looking at this marvelous saying, all too sadly is realizing just how false and how dead wrong this sentiment really is. Now, some people think that this sentiment is wrong because, well, they hate the radical feminist movement. Some people think that this sentiment is wrong because of the empirical evidence of statistical crime rates. But the truth of the matter is, this sentiment is wrong because God said so in his word. Fathers, you are important and probably more important than you ever realized because society doesn't say that to you very much. But it is an absolute fact. The very moral fabric of society is dependent on you. An attitude of estrangement between fathers and their children and the subsequent moral debauchery of our society is not a 21st century phenomenon. It's been going on for a long time. Here in the book of Malachi, we find that sometime during the 5th century B.C., God sent a messenger to his chosen people to summon a reconciliation of the fathers and their children. That is the first tangible evidence that someone is turning back to God. It's the first tangible evidence that a society is turning back to God. The first way you're going to see that is that the father's hearts will be returned to the children. And the children's hearts will then be returned to the father. You know, here in the book of Malachi, this is 400 years before Christ came. And it was a very critical time for religion and morality in the nation of Israel. In spite of the fact that God had rebuilt the temple and the wall exactly as it was prophesied, exactly the way that he said he was going to do it to prove that he was God, 
Despite God's warnings, despite God's rebukes, despite the promise of the coming of the Messiah, there was at this time an amazing lack of reverence and devotion that prevailed amongst not only the priests, but also all of the people. Obviously then, over the fathers as well. Crime was rampant. There was a general feeling of being unsafe. Sexual debauchery was rampant. Apathy and anarchy were strong, and the fabric of society was literally being torn apart when God sent Malachi to speak to them. And in a stinging rebuke to the leaders and the men of the society, especially the men of the society, the prophet of God rebukes them for their errors. And I want us to walk through this very quickly and see what their errors were. Go back with me. You're in Malachi chapter 4. Just turn a page or two and you'll be in Malachi 1. Look there with me. Malachi 1, look at verse 6. A son honoreth his father, and a servant his master. If then I be a father, where is my honor? And if I be a master, where is my fear? Saith the Lord of hosts unto you, O, o priest that despise my name. And you say, wherein have we despised thy name? Ye offer polluted bread upon mine altar. And you say, wherein have we polluted thee? In that you say, the table of the Lord is contemptible. And if you offer the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And if you offer the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Offer it now unto thy governor. Will he be pleased with thee or accept thy person, saith the Lord of hosts? Now skip down to verse 12. But ye have profaned it, talking about his temple, in that ye say the table of the Lord is polluted and the fruit thereof, even his meat, is contemptible. You said also, behold, what a weariness is it. And you have snuffed it at it, saith the Lord of hosts. And ye brought that which was torn, and, that, and the lame, and the sick. Thus ye brought an offering. Should I accept this of your hand, saith the Lord? But cursed be the deceiver which hath in his flock a male, and voweth and sacrificeth unto the Lord a corrupt thing. For I am a great king, saith Jehovah of the hosts, and my name is dreadful among the heathen. You realize that when you look at verse 8, that, that, that he's, they're offering to God what they wouldn't even offer to the government, governor, that the people thought more of other people than they thought of God. God doesn't really matter. If we do anything with this religious stuff, it's just what we do. We don't take it seriously enough even to pick out the best of the flock to offer to the Almighty God because maybe they didn't have the confidence that he was the Almighty God. And so we kind of have to question ourselves. Do we live in a society that is characterized by a reverence for Jehovah God and the things of God? I would say obviously not. Or do we live in a society that constantly puts self first, where God is kind of viewed as some kind of cosmic party pooper that doesn't want anyone to have any fun? By the way, you do realize when it comes to the rampant sexual debauchery out in the world that that, 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 that shouldn't affect us because God is the one that made sex, Right? God's the one that made it as wonderful as it is. There's nothing wrong with it. But then God put it into a house where we could enjoy it safely and that it wouldn't hurt and damage other people like children. And so God is not what the world tries to portray him as. And wherever a society falls for these kind of lies, that all the things that God wants us to do are only going to ruin our fun, whenever they fall for those lies, it's on its way down and down fast. And where does it begin? It begins in our families. And even more so, it begins in the fathers of our families. Because fathers, you are so important. And it is usually the young men that go off and cause a problem. Now, go to chapter 2 with me. 
Chapter 2, look at verse 11. Judah hath dealt treacherously, and an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah hath profaned the holiness of the Lord which he loved, and hath married the daughter of a strange God. Jehovah will cut off the man that doeth this, the master and the scholar, out of the tabernacle of Jacob, and him that offereth an offering unto the Lord of hosts. And this have ye done again. By the word, the, the word again there is sheni. And it means you've done it a double time. Now what he's going to explain that you have done is coupled or, or combined with what he said before. What he said before is that the people of my land have married the daughter of a, of a foreign god. And so their, how, the worship of their house has left me. Now, now here's something else that they did that's coupled with it. You ready? Verse 13, and this have you done again, Sheni. Covering the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, and with crying out, insomuch that he regardeth not the offering anymore, or receiveth it with goodwill at your hand. Yet you say, Wherefore? And God gives him the answer. Because the Lord hath been witness between thee and the wife of thy youth, against whom thou hast dealt treacherously, yet is she thy companion and the wife of thy covenant. You understand what was happening is they, they, would, they, would, they would get an Israeli woman and make an Israeli child. And then they would abandon them in order to marry the daughter of a foreign god. So they have, they have coupled marrying the daughter of a foreign god with an abandonment of the mothers of their children. Look a little further. Verse 15. And did not he make one? Yet had he the residue of the spirit? And wherefore one? Why did God make you two married? And did he have a residue of the Spirit? The answer there, it's a rhetorical question. Of course not. He was able spiritually to make you one. And your sex was to make you one in the flesh. And why did he do it? And it says here that he might seek a godly seed. Therefore take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously against the wife of his youth. For the Lord, the God of Israel, saith that he hateth putting away. For one covereth violence with his garment, saith the Lord of hosts. Therefore take heed to your spirit that ye deal not treacherously. That you deal not in a way that, 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 that abandons your wife and children. Divorce was rampant. But there was an abandonment of the women too. In verse 14 there, it uses the word treacherously. It's the word begod. And it literally means, it's a word that means to pillage or to take from someone and leave them penniless. That's what the men were doing. That's what was happening. Divorcing her, letting her take care of the children, leaving her in poverty to fend for herself. It was a total abdication of husband responsibilities and a total abdication of fatherly responsibilities. Now that I've raised up the seed, it's time for me to go have my fun. What foolishness is that? There is no such thing as fun outside of God because it all comes back to hurt us. Not one principle, not one law that God gave to us was ever to hurt us. Every single law and principle was given to us to help us and to make life better. Our sinful natures are so foolish we don't always recognize that. But that is why God gave us the law. For our good that life might be rich and full and enjoyable. And we have to overcome that sinful nature. Especially if we have the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. Amen. Amen. We've got the Holy Spirit to help us do that. And we've got to realize what it is that is going on out here in the world. So there was a total abdication of the husband responsibilities. The father responsibilities. And yet they justify themselves. Look at verse 17. 
Ye have wearied the Lord with your words. The word is dalar, your case, your matter, your argument to me. When you say, everyone that doeth evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delighteth in them. Or you say, well, if it's wrong, where is God's judgment on me? Boy, the grace of God is magnificent, isn't it? And the nation of Israel does not realize how close to the precipice it is. You know, you're always on solid ground until you step off. Israel's one step away. And they think, well, since God hasn't struck me with lightning, then my fornication must be okay. Sound familiar? I didn't become a Christian until I was a senior in college. Twelve years of secular schooling, four years of secular college. I remember thinking this exact way. I was one of those that said, yes, I'm going to hell, but all my friends are going to, and we're going to have a kegger party in hell. Yeah, I'm ashamed to admit that today because of the utter, complete, blasphemous foolishness that that is. But I was one of those people. So I can see and understand how people apart from God fall for the lies of Satan. What I don't understand is how when people know Jesus Christ is Savior and have the guidance of the Holy Spirit, they still fall for the lies of Satan. That's where we need to start. So where is this judgment of God? If what we're doing is wrong, why hasn't God struck us with lightning? Well, in chapter 3, God says, I want you to know of a surety that that judgment is coming. So look there in chapter 3. Let's start in verse 1. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. That's sarcastic. You supposedly delight in the fact that I'm sending a Savior. Yeah. And, he, and the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to the temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. But who may abide the day of his coming? Oh, we want the Lord to come back. And in, in actuality, it's like, no, you don't. Because if the Lord's going to come back and get rid of evil, he's going to start with you. That's what unsaved people need to understand. You want peace and everything done right in the world. You won't put it in your own life. You want God to do it. Well, when God does it, he's going to start with you. If you're here this morning and don't know Christ as Savior, you're not the solution to the problem. God says you're the problem. And you need to realize that. It's only through a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and following in the footsteps of Christ and doing things the way God would have you do that you become part of the solution. Because that's the right way to live. And it doesn't matter what your carnal nature tells you. Your carnal nature is a fallen nature. It is not one that thinks properly or acts properly. It has fallen for the lies of one of your, your enemy, which is Satan. And so you need to realize that you need to turn around. Because as much as you're saying, yeah, Lord, you know, punish those people for doing wrong. <laughs> when you point at those people, how many fingers are pointing back at you? And that judgment is coming for you. Verse 2, but who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller soap. And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former years. Okay, wait a minute. When is that then that he's talking about? It's the then after God comes and judges evil and gets rid of it. And if you're that evil, what happened to you? If you weren't part of the solution, how did God cure the problem without doing away with you? 
Verse 5. And I shall come near to you to judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against false swears and against those that oppress the hireling in his wages and the widow and the fatherless that turn aside the stranger from his right. And fear not me, saith Jehovah. And when it says of hosts, it means who is over everything. There's not a higher court you can appeal to. There's not someone that's going to come and protect you from his judgment. There isn't anyone that can. That's why you need to understand his Savior today. Because for your own life, we don't really know when it is that he is coming. But God makes it very clear to them, there is a judgment that is going to come. And gives them this last summons to repentance. Now we come to the appendix. After God has talked to them about how bad their society is, how wrong their attitudes are, how they need the Savior that they're calling for. They need him to be their Savior, not their judge. Now comes the appendix, chapter 4. Look there with me again. Look at verse 1. For behold, the day cometh that he shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly. This is the reward of the wicked. He cometh, he shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. That's what's coming to the wicked. Now, verses 2 and 3 are going to tell us what's coming to the righteous. Sorry. Thank you. Look at verse 2. Here's what's coming to the righteous. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of righteousness, the same sun that burns and scorches them, the son of righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. And ye shall tread down the wicked, for they should be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts. Now we come to verse 4, which is the exhortation of how to come back to God. How to live that you don't face that judgment. Remember ye the law of Moses my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel, with the statutes and the judgments. This is the exhortation. It says here, remember, it's the word zakar. It's the same word that God used when he said he remembered Noah. Sometimes people think as the flood was going on, at the end of the flood, God, oh yeah, remembered Noah. Oh yeah, there's Noah. I forgot about him. That's not what zakar means. Zakar means to keep in mind, to always have it there. Sometimes it's translated to, to heed something. And that's what's being said here. When it says here, remember ye the law of Moses, the idea is keep it in your mind so you'll do what it says, so that you will heed it with all the statutes that I have commanded you, which define for us what holiness is. You want to live a holy life? You want to live a righteous life before God? Then you need to know the law. And I know that we're not under the law, we're under grace. But I want to live for God. And if I want to live for God, then I have to live holy. And God gave us the law to define holiness. Now, I'm not talking about the sacrificial law. I'm not talking about the ceremonial law. I'm talking about the righteous law. That we could see what God considers to be righteous and not righteous. This idea that the Christians have nothing to do with the law is only true if you don't care to please God. Because if you care to please God, you need to know what pleases Him. And He defined that for us very clearly. That's why we need to continue to look at the Old Testament. Because it has a huge bearing on our life today, even in the church age. 
And so it gives to us that that's how it's to be done. Now, now it, verse 5 says that there's this calling before it comes, there's going to be the forerunner. And then in verse 6, as I said before, is the first sign of a restored society. The first tangible result of those who have zakar kept in mind the laws and statutes of God. What is the first tangible thing that happens to repair society and make us right with God? Look at what it says in verse 6. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers. And if that doesn't happen, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. This is where it begins, fathers. You are molding society. You are deciding when the judgment of God comes. If your heart is not turned to the children, God says, then I will come and smite the earth with a curse. Because so much of what happens in society is on the shoulders of the fathers in the home. Don't for one minute fall for the lies that are being told in our society that fathers are superfluous to the raising of children. You can't imagine how absolutely important they really are. And if not, judgment is coming. When you study the Ten Commandments, and I trust that you have it sometime, if you remember... God gave them to Moses on two tablets. And on the first tablet is the commandments concerning our relationship with God. We're to have no other gods before him. We're to make no graven images of him because any image that you would make of God only degrades him. We were not to take the name of the Lord in vain. And we were to remember the Sabbath. Why? Because as we've said before, no relationship can ever survive without time and effort being put into it. And God said, I want our relationship to survive. So I'm going to give you an entire day that you can dedicate to working on our relationship. So there's the time. It's up to us to put in the effort, right? But no relationship works without time and effort being put into it. So God provided us that time. We provide the effort. Now, on the second tablet is all of the laws that pertain to our relationship with one another. First tablet was all the laws that pertain to God. No other gods before him. Don't take his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath. Don't make any graven images. Now we have the second tablet. And it tells us about our relationship with each other. We're not to murder anybody. We're not to steal anything. We are not to bear false witness. These are the things that are on the second tablet. But actually, what was the first one on the second tablet? The number one command dealing with our relationship to each other. I want to give you some hints of what it's not. It was not... Honor your mother and father. It was not even children obey your parents. The first law that was the cornerstone of our relationship with one another, that everything of how a society would interact with each other hung on this, honor your father and mother. It hung on the relationship between the child and the father. And we saw that this commandment, honor your father and mother, presupposed the responsibility of, of, of parents to their children. That's what it's all talking about. Now, the, this is the first of the law. Understand that God had already given us the sacrificial system. Sacrificial system started with Adam and Eve. When they tried to cover themselves with fig leaves and their own works, it wasn't right. Our own works will never save us, no matter how good you think those works are. 
Maybe those fig leaves were sown really beautifully and greatly decorated. They could not cover their sin. God had to make them, them coats from skins of animals. The sacrifice of blood. It started way back then. That's how Cain and Abel knew what the sacrifice was. So when we come to the law and God gives us the law, it's already given to us the sacrificial system. And that's important. Because the sacrificial system was instituted as a ceremony for them to experience so that they could understand that God would one day send a sacrifice for our sins. This ceremony reminded them that you can't get saved, you can't be right with God by putting your faith in that ceremony. You had to put your faith in what that ceremony represented. That the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world would come. And by the way, he did come. It was the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Okay, so before we even get to the law, that's already out there. It's not a part of the law. It's what saves us from the law, right? So fathers, before you ever get to the law, you have to have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Now, once we have that relationship, once that's understood that we are saved from our sin by faith in what that sacrifice foreshadowed, then we can move on to the law. Deuteronomy chapter 11 says this. No, sorry, turn there with me. Hold your finger here, turn to Deuteronomy. I decided to use too many verses to put it up, sorry. Deuteronomy chapter 11, back toward the front of the Bible. Salvation's already out there. Deuteronomy chapter 11 is the repeating of the law. That's what the, the, the dut part is that. Duet, double part. It's the repeating of the law. Look at verse 18. Therefore shall you lay up these my words in your heart and in your soul and bind them for a sign on your hand that they may be as frontlets between your eyes. It's most important, fathers, that first of all, you, you, you're in the sacrificial system. You've now come to know God's sacrifice, which is Jesus Christ, as your personal Savior. Next, fathers, you need to lay up in your heart what the law is. Why? Because the law will keep you safe. The law will help your life be wonderful. The law will teach you how to live life. Once you have that in your heart, once you're learning about it, now look at what you do next. Look back here again, verse 19. And ye shall teach them your children... Speaking of them when thou sittest in thine house and when thou walkest by the way, when thou liest down and when thou rousest up, and thou shalt write them upon the doorpost of thine house and upon thy gates, that your days may be multiplied in the days of your children in the land which the Lord swear unto your fathers to give them as the days of heaven upon the earth. You want long life? You want peace and joy? First of all, know Christ as Savior, but second of all, lay that up in your heart. And third of all, teach it to your children because your children are going to make the society that you live in. The society that I live in was made by the children of my generation and the children of my generation were made by what their fathers taught them. That's why it's so important fathers for you to do that because there's things that you can do that only you can do and that's why you're so important and it's time that you stepped up in the way that God wanted and provided for that importance. Now go back to the book of Malachi. The first effect of keeping God's commandment is turning of the hearts of the fathers to the children. So the question then has to come down, if I'm a father and now you tell me what to do it, how do I do that? 
How do I turn my heart to my children? What does that mean? Because we have to have a practical application or we're just talking religious platitudes, right? We have to be able to see how God would have us to do that. Let me give you just one verse that can define it for us. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 11. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father doth his children. There's a synopsis, the smallest definition I can give you, fathers, of what it means to be a father. And so I want us to take a little time to look at this. Let's examine this so that we can understand it. The proper way for a father to in interact with his son. And the first thing that it said is that you are to exhort them. Parakaleo is the word in the Greek. By the way, the word for the Holy Spirit in the New Testament is parakletos. Parakletos is a noun. It means one who comes along beside to guide me, to help me, to direct me. When, it, when you exhort someone, it's parakaleo. That's the verb. I'm exhorting someone. I'm coming along beside them. I'm guiding them. I'm helping them. I'm inviting them so that they can be next to me and be comforted. Father, that's your first job. Your children look to you for guidance. They need your guidance. And it's not just the Bible that says so. I mean, this isn't what makes it true. As I've already said, if the Bible says it is true, amen? Okay, but let's look at what secular studies have decided. In his book, Life Without Father, David Popino, professor of sociology at Rutgers University, documents several studies on the importance of fathers to children. Let me read to you some of his writings. He says, the decline of fatherhood is a major force behind many of the most disturbing problems that plague our society. Few people doubt the fundamental importance of mothers, but what do fathers do? Fathers bring an array of unique qualities. Some are familiar, protector and role model. Teenage boys without fathers are notoriously prone to trouble. The pathway to adulthood for daughters is somewhat easier, but they still must learn from their fathers in ways they cannot from their mothers how to relate to men. They learn from their fathers about heterosexual trust, intimacy, and difference. They learn to appreciate their own femininity. They do that from the one male who is most special in their lives. Most important, through loving and being loved by their fathers, women learn that they are love-worthy. Don't, young ladies, settle for a man that isn't going to lead you in the ways of the Lord, you are worthy of love. And your father should have taught you that. And if he didn't, then you've got to learn it anyway from your heavenly father. Let me go on reading. Current research gives much deeper and more surprising insight into the father's role in child rearing. One significant overlooked dimension of fathering is play. From their children's birth through adolescence, fathers tend to emphasize play more than caretaking. The father's style of play is likely to be both physically stimulating and exciting. With older children, it involves more teamwork, requiring competitive testing of physical and mental skills. It frequently resembles teaching relationships like, come on, let me show you how. Mothers play more at a child's level. Generally speaking, they are more willing to let the child direct the play. Kids, at least in the early years, seem to prefer to play with daddy. In one study of two-and-a-half-year-olds who were given a choice, more than 78% of them chose to play with dad and not mom. Nothing against you, mom. 
you should want your fathers to play with your children. The way fathers play has effects on everything from the management of emotions to intelligence and academic achievement. It is particularly important in promoting self-control. According to many experts, quote, children who roughhouse with their fathers quickly learn that biting, kicking, and other forms of physical violence are not acceptable. They learn when to shut it down. Do you understand that roughhousing between a father and child is not teaching them to be violent? It's teaching them to be under control. It's teaching them to learn what is right and acceptable and what is not, and to be able to not go beyond those bounds. Society has now come to realize that it is a good thing, not a bad thing. At play in other realms, fathers tend to stress competition, challenging initiative, risk-taking, and independence. Mothers as caretakers stress emotional security and personal safety. In the very same chapter, 1 Thessalonians, that we looked at, that we saw how fathers are to act, this is what it says about mothers. But we were gentle among you, even as a nurse, the word that is used there means mother, cherisheth her children. Fathers and mothers are different. But what they bring to the table, the child needs both of. And may I say, both sexes of your children need it. And it's vitally important that fathers provide that. On the playground, fathers often try to get the child to swing ever higher, while mothers are cautious, worrying about an accident. We know, too, that father's involvement seems to be linked to improved verbal and problem-solving skills and higher academic achievement. Several studies found that the presence of the father is one of the determinants of a girl's proficiency in mathematics. Just by hanging around with you, interacting with you, reasoning with you, your daughter will learn how to do mathematics better. Part of the reason, they say, is because men and women tend to think differently. Men tend to be the problem solver. Women tend to be those that hold relationships together. Both are vital. Both are absolutely necessary. Several studies found that the presence of the father is one of the determinants of a girl's proficiency in mathematics. And one pioneering study showed that along with paternal strictness, the amount of time that fathers spent reading with them was a strong predictor of their daughter's verbal ability. Just by reading with them. Girls are much more verbal than, than boys are. But they're even better at it when dad interacts with them because now they learn how to interact not only with their mother, the same sex, but with the opposite sex. And to learn and to think how they think and, and try to understand it from their point of view. And how vitally important is that? Because we've got a society full of people that can only see it from one point of view. And it causes all kinds of problems in our society. For sons... The results have been equally striking. Studies uncovered a strong relationship between father's involvement and the mathematical ability of their sons. Other studies found a relationship between paternal nurturing and a boy's verbal intelligence. All of these things affect it. All of these things matter. And fathers sometimes are just oblivious to it. And maybe you're oblivious to it because you've fallen for what the culture has told you. That you're not important. It could not be any bigger a lie. You are vitally important. And most fathers don't even realize it. Charles Adams. He's the grandson of John Adams, our second president. He is the son of John Quincy Adams, who was our sixth president. 
He was a very accomplished man as well. He spent five years in the Massachusetts legislature at a time when the whole country was looking to Massachusetts to see how to form itself. He served in the U.S. House of Representatives. He was the man that was appointed Minister of Great Britain during the Civil War. He had seven children. The last one that he had was a son, Brooke Adams, that was born 17 years after his first child was born. So his youngest son kind of didn't get the same energy from his father that the others did. Brooke Adams was a very brilliant man. He was a lawyer. He authored five magnificent books on political science. I majored in college in that. That's why I was able to do it, to understand him. Now, like most men of that age, they kept lifelong diaries. And for the men that did that, if you've ever read Washington's diary, I don't recommend it to you. It is the most boring diary I've ever read. But having said that, I had to in college, so I read it. Both of these men kept diaries of their whole life, Charles Adams and Brooke Adams. Now, it seems that Charles had promised his young son when he was eight years old that on the next free day I have, I will take you fishing. He's in the middle of forming up some laws that he's trying to get instituted in Massachusetts and hence the country. And he had a little interlude in that time in which his son Brooke reminded him, you said you'd take me fishing. So he took him fishing on July 13th, 1856. Eight-year-old Brooke, 49-year-old Charles. He took his son fishing. On that day, July 13th of 1856, there is a one-line entry in both of their diaries. The father's one-line entry said this, went fishing with my son today, a wasted day. His son's diary says, went fishing with my dad today, the greatest day of my life. Fathers, you have no idea how much you mean to your children and the effect that you could have on them just by being around them. What's the second thing this verse said? You know how we exhorted and comforted every one of you as a father does his children. Comforted denotes the soothing side of the Christian engagement. Dad is the one that is supposed to teach kindness and caring and, 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 and comforting. He needs to teach his children how to do that to each other. And the way you teach how to do each other is that's how you are. This caricature of Christianity wherein the father dominates the home and comes home and everybody has to serve the father is completely wrong. Fathers, when you come through the door, it's your responsibility to serve everyone else. Is, did not Christ say that the greatest among us would be the servant of all? You are the greatest among your home. You're the head of your home. It is your job to serve your mate. It is your job to serve your children. And this idea that it is your responsibility and your right to dominate the home is ungodly. It's not biblical. It's not biblical in any way. Get rid of it. Get it out of your mind. You are to set the example in kindness. You are to set the example in patience. You are to bring them alongside and comfort them in whatever it takes by your kindness and your care. That's what a father is supposed to do. I don't think we often think of fathers in connection with the teaching of empathy. Yet this character trait has now been shown to be essential to an ordered society and a law-abiding, cooperative, and compassionate adult. 
But in a 26-year study by two researchers at a prestigious university, the conclusions realized by these doctors were termed astonishing, quite astonishing. And what was it? What did it that they found out? That the most important childhood factor in developing empathy was paternal involvement in child care. Fathers taking care of their children. When you have a society where people don't know empathy, they will still have a connection to the mother. But everyone else is dirt to them. How can you go out and beat up a woman the same age as your mother and rob her? It's easy. I have no empathy. I don't feel what they feel. Because my father never taught me to feel what they feel. It's not really clear why, but mothers rarely, if ever, were able to instill this quality in their children without a father. It's not clear why fathers are so important in instilling this. Maybe it's just being with the child. Maybe it's showing care in strength. Perhaps by their style of play or their mode of reasoning, they instill it. But whatever the cause, it's hard to think of a more important contribution that a father could make to his children and to society than to teach your children to care for other people. One study wrote this. A mother's role will always remain primary in terms of intimacy, care, and nurture. The toughest man may well sport a tattoo dedicated to the love of his mother without the slightest embarrassment or sentimentality. No father can replace that relationship. But it is equally true that when a child begins to move into that period of differentiation from home and engagement with the world out there, that he or she looks increasingly to the father as their role model. Where the father is indifferent, inadequate, or just plain absent, the task of differentiation and engagement is almost impossible. When children see that church is a woman and a child thing, they will respond accordingly by not going to church or going much less. I don't mean to discourage you if you're a single mother here. What you need to do is to rely on the men of this church to help you with your child. Because in another study that was a Christian study, it showed that, when, that no matter how faithful a wife's devotion was to church, if the father does not go, only 2% of the, the young men will grow up to go to church. 2%. These are figures that we've seen in other places too. CEF did a 25-year study on this. Their conclusions was this. If the church connects to a child... 3.5% of the time, the family follows. If the church connects to a mother, 17% of the time, the family follows. Fathers, are you listening? If the church connects with the father, 93% of the time, the family follows. Because you're the leaders of your home. God puts you in that position. By the way, your wife allowed it to happen because God asked her to. That's right. You have no right to ever subject your wife. The Bible says that women are to be in submission to their own husbands, not to other men, to their own husbands. And they ask God, and you do that because God asked you to. Not because he's smarter or brighter or, or stronger or anything. It has nothing to do with it. You do it because God asked you to. Men, the only reason they do it is because God asked them to. And that's something that you need to keep in mind. They don't owe you anything. And whatever they're doing, it's because they love you and they love God. 
That's why it's so important that you go to church and bring them with you. The day I got married, I realized, man, I, I got the best end of that deal. <laughs> and the way to keep her with me was to take her to church and to love the Lord and to serve her the way God told me to. It's worked out pretty well, at least for me. I'm not gonna, I didn't bring her so you couldn't ask her. <laughs> Stay home, dear. <laughs> you might ruin my sermon. <laughs> anyway, you see the importance of fathers in this. It's vi- you're vitally important, and it doesn't go away. Everything in life comes back to how you interacted with your father. I didn't grow up with a father. My father left when I was six. I didn't see him again until I was an adult. The word daddy never came off my lips. I never had a dad. That word sounds strange to me to this day. And if you're one of those like me that that word sounds funny, then isn't it difficult for you to see God in the right perspective too? Only by the strength of the Holy Spirit and reading the word over and over do I realize that he's my father. Do you know why that is? Because my father was not a father to me. You getting that drift, fathers? The relationship that your children have with God is dependent on their relationship with you. Is there anything more important than that? That's why the first tangible evidence that people are getting right with God is that the father's heart are turned to the children. I realize it's a difficult thing to raise kids. I teach all the time that it's not for lazy people. You can't be lazy and raise kids. It's just too much that you have to do when it comes to being consistent and loving and kind and caring and living their life you know, with them. But isn't it worth it all? If it wasn't, God wouldn't have made it the way it is. This is something that we need to see. We are so important in their lives. And then lastly in this verse, we know how, you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father doth his children. The word charger literally means testify. It's the word martyr. It means to, to, to have an earnest witness, an earnest charge as if you were in the presence of God as a witness. Fathers are the one that urge home their message, the message of God to the hearts and to the consciences of their children. We just saw that in all the statistics that we looked at. If you're not charging your children in the way you live and the way you talk, if you're not writing it on your doorpost and talking about it when you sit down and when you stand up, only 2% of young men are ever going to come to know Christ as Savior. That's it. Maybe you're a man in this church and you don't have a son. Maybe your son's grown. Look around. If there's a woman in this church who has a son, they need your help. Grandpas, they need your help. You need to teach that child how a man is supposed to be and especially how a man of God is supposed to be. The Bible's very clear on this. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, the next verse after it says that we are to comfort and exhort says this, that you would walk worthy of God who hath called you unto his kingdom and glory. That's the charge that you give. My son, I want you to walk worthy of God. He's called you into his kingdom. You need to get saved. And one day we're going to find as we live even in this life that our glory comes from God, not this world. These are the things that a man needs to teach. Do you know the Bible says that God chose Abraham? 
you do realize that God did not look down on the face of the earth and say, of all the people on the earth, I like the Jews the best. No, there was no Jewish nation. God went to a man named Abram, chose him, and said, I want you to go out from your country. I want you to go out from your family. I'm going to change your name to Abraham, and you're going to, be, uh, uh, you're going to give rise to a nation that's going to interact with me. Now, that was important for all of the world. God is a spirit. How are we going to know him if we can't interact with him? If you want to get to know me, you've got to interact with me. You've got to see what makes me laugh, what makes me mad, what makes me sad, right? Well, how do you do that with God? He's a spirit. So God said, I'm going to make a nation of Abraham, and I'm going to interact with that nation. And by doing that, the whole world can see what I'm like, who I am, what I judge, what I bless. But you want to know why he chose Abraham? The Bible tells us, for I know him that he will charge his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord and to do righteousness and judgment. He chose Abraham because he said, Abraham will be the right father to his children. And if I'm going to form a nation, and that nation has to have children and more children and more children, I've got to have someone who will charge them as I tell them to, that they will come to God and serve him. That's why Abraham was chosen. I can't give you a stronger recommendation, fathers, for how to be right with God. I don't know of a stronger recommendation than that. When society is on the mend, the father's hearts are turned to the children, and the children's hearts are turned to the father. If you really love your child, is anything more important than their eternal health and happiness? Buy them everything they ever want. Fulfill every little whim that they have. Pay for the best education for them that money can buy. Give them anything else humanly possible. But if your child dies without Christ and forfeits his or her soul to hell for eternity, what have you accomplished in your child? For all will it profit a man that he should gain the whole world and lose his own soul. There is nothing more important in all of life than that you look to the eternal welfare of your children. And that starts with looking into your own. Ross Green was a pastor on the Wisconsin frontier in the 1800s. Tough life out there. He had three boys and his youngest, his darling little girl. When she was around 12 years old, she became terribly sick. Pastor Green knew she was close to death. He was beside himself in anguish, constantly blaming himself. If only I hadn't brought her to Wisconsin, maybe she wouldn't have gotten sick. Oh, God, she's too young to die. Was she prepared for eternity? He writes that he thinks his heart would have broken with anguish when she died if God had not allowed a certain event to take place. He was at her bedside, dissolved in tears, when she was drawing her last breath, gasping and fighting for it. And she cried out, Father, take me. Immediately he grabbed her, put her into his arms in his lap and said, I'm here, darling, I've got you. And he said she just stopped struggling. She looked him in the eye and she reached up and put her hand on his cheek. And she said, thank you, Daddy. But I was talking to my heavenly Father. And she died. Sounds tough, doesn't it? But Pastor Ross Green wrote this. 
He said, in that moment, I knew my little girl was in the best hands that she could possibly be in. In that moment, I knew that she was fine, and I knew I'd see her again. And I also knew that as a father, I had done the single most important thing I could have done. I helped her understand the truth of eternal matters and led her to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Fathers, in the lives of your children, you are so important. And God has called you to exhort them and to comfort them. That word comfort can also mean encourage them and to charge them on how they are to live their life before God and in this society. Boys and girls need their father. That's why I say to you that you are so important. If that's the kind of father you had, then you need to thank your heavenly father every single day because you were given a gift that fewer and fewer people in our country are given. Women, if that's the kind of father that your spouse is to your children, you ought to thank your heavenly father every single day. And if you're here today and that's the kind of father you are, I'd like to thank you on behalf of your spouse. And I'd like to thank you on behalf of your children. And I'd like to thank you on behalf of myself. Because you're molding the society that I live in. And you're the ones that have the power to save it from judgment and to make it right before God. This is your day, fathers. I hope you'll always know just how important you really are. And I hope that you will remember that it begins with having Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. If you've never accepted Christ, let me say this. You can ask him for forgiveness of sins, but you have to do it believing right things. You can't say to him, God, forgive me of my sin because I'm a pretty good guy. Because you see, your sin has to be paid for, and that doesn't pay for your sin. You can't say, God, please forgive my sin. I'm not as bad as my neighbor. Because that doesn't pay for your sin. And you can't say, God, forgive me of my sin because I'm really, really sorry. Because that doesn't forgive your sin. The only way to have a right relationship with God is to say this. Father, please forgive my sin because you sent your son to pay for it. And on the cross of Calvary, he took my punishment and now gives me a choice. That either I can pay for my sins separated from you in hell for eternity or I can accept the payment that Jesus Christ made for my sin and spend eternity with you in heaven. That's the choice that Christ made possible for us. Amen? Amen. Fathers, please make the right choice. It will have effects and ramifications not only in this world, but for all of eternity. Amen? Amen. Thank you for letting me come. I really do enjoy seeing you folks. Love you to pieces. And if you have not accepted Christ, today's the day. Today's the day. Thank you.